This is Kotecki on Tech. I am James Kotecki, here with an MIT research scientist, best-selling author, TED speaker, who is here to talk about his new book, More From Less, the surprising story of how we learn to prosper using fewer resources and what happens next. Andrew McAfee, welcome to the show. James, thanks for having me. Okay, so your core concept in the book is that advanced economies, at least, are using fewer material inputs to grow. And before we get into why that's happening, I think that in itself is kind of a counterintuitive concept. So just convince us that that's even true. And the reason I decided to write the book was because I found it so counterintuitive. I walked around with this idea about economic growth that it needs more every year in order to continue to provide a higher and higher standard of living, higher GDP for a bigger population. You know, of course, you need more resources. You need more material inputs to that growing economy. And when I first heard that wasn't true anymore in America, I said, well, well, that can't be right. So I double-checked, and I, I, I banged on the evidence as hard as I could, and I came to the conclusion that that was actually correct, and I thought that was a pretty phenomenal change in a, in a big way and merited a book. And so to try to make that phenomenon concrete, America now, even as the economy grows, as our population grows, we use less, not per capita, not per person, but we use less copper, less nickel, less fertilizer, less water for agriculture, less cropland, less timber, less paper, less of all of these material building blocks that I thought created an economy, we now continue to grow our economy while using less of those things over time. I think that's a pretty profound phenomenon, and so I thought it merited a book. You talk about four main reasons that this is happening in America, and these are capitalism, technology, public awareness and government responsiveness. And I imagine that of those four, capitalism and, and being a cheerleader for capitalism is the thing that maybe most people have the most trouble accepting, especially in this day and age. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And being a cheerleader for capitalism is a little unpopular these days. And I mean something pretty specific here. When I talk about capitalism, what I mean is not crony capitalism, not corporatism, not favoring incumbents, not all these perversions of capitalism, but companies locked in nasty competition to deliver goods and services to us. And that nasty competition is really important because that forces them to keep their costs low. That provides the impetus to look around for ways to save every possible penny in every, in every part of the company. And one thing companies spend money on is inputs, materials, resources. So that cost-saving drive applies to those resources. And the story I tell in the book is that this amazing digital toolkit that we now have essentially gives companies an offer that they didn't really have before or in previous decades. And that offer is use a bit instead of an atom. Use technology, use information, use data as a substitute in lots of different ways from these raw materials, resources that you were spending money on all throughout the industrial era. You don't have to do that as much anymore. And because of the nasty competition inherent in capitalism, companies are taking that offer over and over all over the economy. And it's led to this phenomenon called dematerialization. You talk about capitalism and technology as these kind of two co-drivers of dematerialization, but then you also talk about 
public awareness and responsive government as also being essential parts of the equation? Why aren't capitalism and technology enough? I think they are enough for decreased resource use because of the one-two punch of the desire to save money on resources and the opportunity offered by technology. However, decreasing our materials consumption is not the only important part of taking better care of the planet. We also have to pollute it less, and we also have to protect animals that we almost drove out of existence in the industrial era. And as big a fan as I am of capitalism and tech progress, they are not going to solve those two problems of species loss and pollution. So I talk about these other two forces that need to come together, which are a public that's aware of the harms of pollution, aware that we shouldn't kill all of the blue whales, for example, and demanding action from their government and getting it from the other force, which is responsive government, responsive to the will of the people, responsive to good ideas for reducing pollution and protecting species. And the point I make is that when you have these two pairs of forces, the first pair is capitalism and tech progress. The second pair is public awareness and responsive government. I, If all four of those are in place, I kind of sit back and expect the things that we care about to get better over time. I want to talk about politics in a minute. But first, uh, you write in the book, you write, it could be that we're just living in a pleasant interlude between the industrial era, and another rapacious period during which we massively increase our footprint on our planet and eventually cause a giant Malthusian crash. But you don't think that that's going to happen. So one phrase I've heard used to describe this sometimes is like we're putting things on the ecological credit card. It seems like things are getting better and better, maybe, but you know, a hardcore environmentalist may say we're still kind of cruising for a bruising. But you don't think that's going to happen. Why not? With one big exception, we absolutely are cruising for a bruising when it comes to global warming. We are cooking our planet. We are putting more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere year after year. They're leveling off, but global emissions are still increasing. And that bill is not going to come due tomorrow. It's going to come due over the course of the 21st century. So global warming is real and bad, and we're not doing enough to stop it. I completely agree. I disagree with some of the proposals out there for how to combat global warming, but I agree that it is a human-caused, very real problem brought on by this kind of pollution that we call greenhouse gases. Great. Aside from that, I really don't love this notion that we're drawing down the environment or that, that we're putting it all on a credit card that's going to come due. Because I look around, and I see that around the, around the rich world, forests are coming back. We're not deforesting, we're reforesting. We are using less cropland year after year to generate all the crops in America. And America is an agricultural powerhouse. The air pollution, again, in affluent countries is going down over time. The rate of extinction, it could pick up over the 21st century with global warming, but the rate of extinctions has been going down, not up. So when I think in areas other than global warming, I really walk away from this notion that we're drawing down our balance on the earth. I think we have finally learned to treat it better, to tread more lightly on it. And if we're not doing that yet in low-income countries, my solution is really obvious. Let's help make them high-income countries as quickly as possible. It is not affluence that is the enemy of our planet and the enemy of the environment. It is poverty. Indira Gandhi said this in 1972. I completely agree. 
you actually put your money where your mouth is in terms of the claims that you're making by making a series of bets about resource prices in the future. So can you explain what those bets are and actually how people have been reacting to them? Are people taking you up on the bets? A little bit. I was inspired by the famous bet between Julian Simon and Paul Ehrlich, which ran from 1980 to 1990. And Ehrlich was a famous pessimist, wrote the book The Population Bomb, and talked about how famines and massive resource shortages were basically inevitable. And and Julian Simon, who's really one of my intellectual heroes, said that's actually not what's going to happen. We are going to be able to innovate our way out of these problems, and the state of humanity is going to get better, not worse. And the two of them disagreed so fundamentally on that that they, that they made a bet. And Simon offered the terms to Ehrlich, and he said, look, you can pick any resources that you want. And if you're right and they're going to get more scarce in the future, that means their prices are going to go up. We can agree on that. So we're going to use prices. You pick any bundle of resources. You pick the time frame that you want. And if at the end of that time frame the prices have gone up, I will pay you the difference. If they've gone down, you will pay me the difference. Ehrlich picked five resources. He picked 10-year time frame for the bet. The real price of all five of those resources had gone down over the decade. So Ehrlich, uh, uh, Simon cleaned up on that bet. I'm inspired by that. I want to make bets that are not just about prices, but also about quantities, because I think that we're not just in some interlude, I think we're going to continue our trend of dematerializing the economy. So I've picked a bunch of pretty important resources where we can track consumption over time in America. And what I'm saying to all takers is the affordability of these will be greater in 10 years than it is now. That's a way to think about prices going down. And America will use less of them in 10 years than we're doing today. Again, not less per person, less in total. I think my riskiest bet is I say America is going to use less total energy hmm. in 10 years than it does today. If you think that's uh, crazy, if you think I'm, I'm, I'm nuts – Great. Take the other side of that bet. They're posted on the Long Bets website. You and, you and I don't get to keep the money no matter who wins. We designate charities that get the money in, a, in the event that we win the bet. Uh, but if you think what I'm saying is wrong and you think that we're heading uh, for some kind of Malthusian period, please take the bet. Uh you talk a lot about America and to an extent the United Kingdom in the book. And one of the reasons you say is because they just have good data that you can actually look at and make some conclusions from. But obviously, those are only two pieces in a much larger larger kind of global economic uh, puzzle. And so I, I wonder, is it is it possible that America is doing all these great things? And even, all, you know, let's say all the rich countries in the world are dematerializing, but you've got places like China, you've got places like India, where they don't have the luxury of doing that in order to get to the affluence that you're talking about. They actually have to go through that industrial revolution era uh, of just continued resource use. And it basically kind of counteracts all the good effects that we're getting from dematerialization in richer countries. Well, low-income countries are absolutely not dematerializing yet. They have to build big cities. They have to build infrastructure. They have to build up their economies, literally, in the years ahead. But I do think that they're going to hit peak material, peak resource, earlier in their economic history than we did. For example, Nigeria is never, ever going to build an extensive copper telephone network. It's just not what they're going to do. I don't think that India or Bangladesh are going to build as many coal plants as America did when we were at that same level mm -hmm. of, of 
GDP because they have access to better, cleaner, greener, more powerful, better technologies. So as the technology toolkit keeps getting better, that toolkit propagates around the world more quickly than ever before, and it's going to help countries get past the point of peak stuff quicker, better than we did in the rich world. Now, I, I am actually not worried about aggregate global resource depletion. I think that is a red herring. I'm really worried about pollution. I am really worried about global warming. I'm really worried about taking better care of our fellow creatures. But I am not worried that we're going to have too many people, and I'm not worried that we're going to deplete the Earth's resources. I just think those are pretty silly things to worry about, given the evidence that we have, given the track record. All right, let's get back to American politics for a second, because this is now about a year out from the 2020 presidential election. And it's hard to look at the book and some of the recommendations that you make and not see it in that context. So reviewing once again, you have basically four factors that lead us to the better world of fewer resource use, uh, of less resource use. You have capitalism, technology, public awareness, and responsive government. When I look at American politics today, and just very broadly, it seems like the forces that are empowering a Donald Trump are things that are kind of stifling the idea of responsive government and certainly stifling the idea of public awareness, spreading misinformation, et cetera, about you know, global warming, for example. Donald Trump famously tweeted that he thought it was a hoax. And on the other side, though, the forces that are empowering uh, the energy on the left, the Sanders and Warren camps, those are actually highly skeptical of the other two factors that you talk about as essential capitalism and technology. So if we need all four of those things, who should I vote for? Uh, I am, uh, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I am going to tell you to vote for the person that is helping these four forces advance. Uh, I'm, I would tell you to vote for candidates who believe in the reality of pollution and global warming, realize them for the priorities that they are, and are willing to take the tough steps necessary to combat them. Well, one thing that worries me a lot is that I just read that since 2016, air pollution levels throughout America have actually been increasing. Our skies have been getting dirtier since 2016. This is a reversal of a decades-long trend of cleaner skies, and it's a really important, really bad reversal. Th that increase since 2016 is associated with about 10,000 additional early deaths. Air pollution is really bad news for your health. That's a big number. That is probably a lot bigger than the total number of early deaths attributable to the Chernobyl accident. Air pollution is not messing around. This is not just a nice-to-have thing. So uh, my, my, the candidates I vote for are the ones who are going to be most serious about lightening our footprint on the planet and taking better care of it over time. You give actually a kind of political platform in the book where you recommend, I think, eight or ten different ways of, of, of evaluating political ideas and political candidates. And it seems like it's kind of a half and half thing, right? I can see people on the left agreeing with about half of it and people on the right agreeing with about half of it. And it, it struck me as a platform written for people who... Uh, who read The Economist magazine. And the reason it did that is because I read The Economist magazine. I like it. I know you like it. You mentioned in the book that you like that. Uh, and But but I just wonder, like, for such a... The country does not seem divided along political lines where I can easily choose a candidate who does align with the ideology that you're laying out. Do you, do you agree with that, that it's at least a difficult choice if you, if you want to kind of vote along these lines? Yeah, absolutely. 
and but I'm not too surprised by that. I don't expect any candidate to exactly share my priorities or my beliefs. Like you say, the recommendations I lay out, some of them appeal to the left, some I think appeal to the right. Uh, Stuart Brand gave a lovely endorsement for the book, which made me so happy because he's really one of my heroes. And he said this book will deconcert ideologues of every stripe. I, I thought that was a, a wonderful compliment, and I'm really happy about that. If you are a diehard socialist, you're really not going to like this book. If you are a diehard libertarian, you're probably really not going to like this book. If you're an old-fashioned environmentalist who believes, for example, that we have to embrace the Green New Deal and we have to step up our recycling efforts, you're not going to like some of the things I say in this book. But I'm trying not to start from a place of ideology. I'm trying to start from the best evidence, the best science, the best research that I could find and go upward from there. So the things that I advocate are kind of this weird hodgepodge of embracing nuclear power, embracing GMOs, being very tough about pollution, being very tough about protecting species and trying and being very open, being very receptive to markets and embracing free market based economic systems and stepping on the gas pedal and funding technological research. Now that doesn't line up with any candidates uh, platform as far as I can tell, but starting from the evidence, that's where I wound up. You actually mentioned several times in the book that it is hard for people to change their minds. How much, it sounds like your own mind did change while you were writing this book and researching it, but do you think you've been able to change anyone else's mind with the book? I always try to keep in mind the mantra that you will never displace a feeling with a fact which can make you depressed, right? Because I'm trying to get the facts and trying to write them up. But if I keep that in mind, it gives me some idea about how to approach people who might not initially agree with me. And the great advice, I always take this from Jonathan Haidt, who I refer to in the book a few times, a psychology professor at NYU. He says, look, start, fr start from common ground. Start from the place that you share and then try to understand why you believe different things, even though you start from that common ground. So I try to say in the book early and often something that I believe, which is that I like this planet a lot. I want us to take better care of it over time. I know you do too. So for example, why do you and I disagree about nuclear power? Now let's talk about that. But once we have a shared understanding, that becomes a conversation that's more likely to maybe change your mind, maybe change my mind. I have heard from a few readers, wow, I never knew that. I never thought of it that way before. And it's just one of the most lovely things you can hear as an author is that you did succeed not in reinforcing somebody's prejudices, but in, in changing their mind or altering their worldview a bit. And I will admit that I'm one of those people. I learned a lot from the book. So I, I really enjoyed it and I appreciate it. One idea that I found interestingly absent in the book was the idea of technological unemployment, which you have explored elsewhere, uh, very famously in, in the second machine age and elsewhere. But it seems like the same incentives that would drive companies to cut material costs would also drive them to cut human labor costs. And so even though you've written about this before, did writing more from less change the way you think about that question, the famous question of will robots take all of our jobs? Yeah, and James, like you know, Eric Bringolfson and I have written a fair amount about this topic. The reason I didn't include it in More From Less is it's really a book about natural resources and the planet that we live on, as opposed to uh, 
the labor force, jobs and wages. We've covered that in other books. But your question is is really an interesting one because labor is another thing that companies spend money on. And labor is another thing where you pay for each additional unit, just like every pound of steel, every uh, gallon of water for fertilizer, every acre of cropland, you pay for every hour of labor. And in the digital world, you might pay a bunch up front, but then you typically don't pay for each additional bit or each additional line of code. And I think we're heading from an economy that's dominated by pay per unit to dominated by don't pay for each additional bit. Now, the, the reason that I don't talk so much about technological unemployment right now is that you don't see it in the evidence anywhere yet. For example, it's not like paper, where we hit peak paper in the U.S., and now total paper use is declining. It's also not like peak energy, where total energy is not yet declining, but it's just been about flat for a decade. Labor is different. Every month when the jobs report comes out, I take a look at it, and the number of jobs goes up every non-recession month, and the number of hours worked goes up. I'm going to start to worry a lot more about technological unemployment when I start to see that jobs or that hours worked line flatten out even as the economic growth line continues to go up. We just don't see that in the evidence yet. And so what we're doing is speculating about when it's going to happen, how soon, how likely I think it is. I don't want to be on that speculation game. Now, I do think we're going to get there. I think we're going to get there sometime in the 21st century, but I don't. I honestly don't know if that's closer to 2030 or 2090. I just don't have a good way to answer that question. So when it comes to labor force issues, I would rather work on the challenges that we know we have right now, as opposed to the not yet a challenge of massive technological unemployment. You talk in the book about peak stuff, and that would kind of be the idea of peak people, I suppose. Peak jobs. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, there's no theoretical reason why, we sh- why we're not going to hit peak jobs, especially because we have hit peak paper. I do think we're going to hit peak power. Peak jobs is certainly uh, possible. I think it's probable. I don't know when it's going to happen, but it's not the problem that we have today. Uh, Robert Gordon is a really good economist at Northwestern, and he's got a great way to summarize it. He says, we do not have a job quantity problem. We have a job quality problem. Hmm. Our economy still generates lots of more, lots more jobs every month, but there they tend to be less well-paid, fewer benefits, more precarious. They're not good old-fashioned middle-class assembly line jobs. They are lower middle-class food service jobs. Now, there are ways to improve the quality of those jobs. I'm not saying that that everything is fundamentally broken. There are things we can do, given that our job creation engine has changed. But the point, and the response to your question, the job creation engine has not seized up. There is, however, a very literal way to talk about peak people, which there may actually be some evidence for. I read a book earlier this year that you may have seen called Empty Planet, which predicts global population decline in advance of what the UN actually predicts. And this is due in large part to increased education of women and increased urbanization. Did those ideas ever come up as you were researching uh, the ideas in More From Less? Yeah, definitely. But I wanted to divorce the idea of our global footprint from our global population. Mm. And like you say, 
we're going to hit peak humanity sometime in the 21st century. I think the consensus is sometime between 2050 and 2100. We're going to hit a global maximum number of people. And then for ever, for all time after that, the number of people is, is going to be lower than that, than that maximum. We are going to hit peak humanity. Uh, and that means that we're going to tread more lightly on the earth as there are fewer of, uh, of us. I wanted to make the point that even as our population increases, we have already learned to tread more lightly on the earth. So when we have this double whammy of the four forces that you and I talked about earlier, plus a declining population, our global footprint is going to go down, I think, quite uh, quite quickly. In the last chapter of the book, I paint this sci-fi scenario of what human life, I think, will be like, not just could be like, I think will be like in the year 2100. And if we play our cards right, we're going to live in these densely populated cities because we humans are an urbanizing species. Those cities will be really clean. They'll be green. I think they'll be powered by these crazy sci-fi um, nuclear power stations. They'll, they'll, the, the water will be cleaner leaving the city than it is coming into the city. We will still go into nature, but not to chop down trees and plant, you know, clear half of the, the forest for cropland. We'll do a bit of that, but we'll go into nature because we humans enjoy going into nature once in a while. So I think we're going to have this densely concentrated urban population around the globe, and we will give most of the planet back to the planet. Andrew McAfee is the author of More From Less, a book which I have read and I highly recommend. Thank you so much for joining me today on Kotechi on Tech. Thanks. It was a pleasure.